to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined as usual by my two co-hosts, Charles Peterson and Lee Johnson. And as is our tradition, we're going to go around and take your drink orders and find out what you're ranting and raving about. So, Charles, what's your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about? I'm feeling a little daffy, everybody, (laughs) and I feel like the slow gin fizz. Something out of a late 1940s film. I'm drinking it. I'm sitting at the bar next to Cary Grant. And that just feels like the thing to have. So I'm going to go with the slow gin fizz. You know what you need with that slow gin fizz? A tuxedo. A fast-talking dame. I need a fast-talking dame. (laughs) With nice gams. That's with nice (laughs) gams. Whose name is Hildy. I'm here for you. She's a newspaper woman. (laughs) I love that movie. Yeah, I love it. That's a great movie. My rant is, and this is so petty, this is just so unnecessary, ducking autocorrect. That mother ducker disrupts my texting. Every ducking time I try to, like, especially when I'm trying to get like a well-timed joke, it just ducks it all up. Just leave it alone. So, So that's my rant. It's so petty. But I mean, who the duck are you to police my language? Is really what I'm asking. Now go home and get your duck and shine box. Now go home and get your duck and shine box. Um, you know, my rave is the life of the mind. I mean, actually being invested in experiences and texts and readings that allow for one to really explore in a deep way how human beings understand, interpret, express their relationship to each other and to the world. And and I'm saying this because over the pandemic, I've had a great opportunity. I've been in a really great reading group, and we've been reading all kinds of things across various traditions, really laying into modernist literature. So we've read Mm. Kafka. We just finished reading Thomas Mann's Death in Venice. Just Mm. amazing work. But there's something so moving about the fact that you've had people who so carefully and so meticulously and so intentionally tried to explore the conditions of human beings for the benefit of all of us. And we we eschew that. We just ignore it or it's a joke. But I think that's so important because I think we're really losing a handle on this particular special thing that we call humanity and human consciousness. So I'm going to go ahead and rave in a really uh, quiet storm sutter way, celebrating the life of the mind. Hear, hear. Lee, so uh, what are you drinking and what's your rant and rave? So I am going to have a margarita today. This is the last weekend before I start classes. And so might as well (laughs) live it up, right? If the listeners could see my face, because I'm thinking, what? No fresca? No fresca. Has something happened between you and fresca? Fresca, call us. Did Fresca hurt you? (laughs) No. I love you, Fresca. You'll always be my boo. Okay. So my rant this week is Le Choc, the Delta variant. Tennessee is in bad shape, you guys. Like our total cases right now are worse than they were this time last year. Our weekly positivity rate is higher than it was even at the peak of the pandemic, which was basically between Thanksgiving and New Year's. It's just looking bad out there. And again, my university has a vaccine mandate. We also have mandated mask wearing inside. I think that's about as safe as you could get. But if I was a betting woman, and I am, I would put money that I will be remote before the end of September. So I'm just really frustrated about this Delta variant. I think that we jumped a little too quickly on the let's get back to normal. And, you know, once you get a taste of that, it's hard to go back to lockdown. And so, yeah, Yeah. it's just really bad. My rave, relatedly, this week is that it looks like we're going to get full FDA approval of the vaccine pretty soon. So just 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 earlier this week, Biden announced that he expects for the FDA to fully approve the COVID vaccine maybe by the beginning of September. That is good. It also seems to be quite likely that around the same time that children under 12 will be able to get vaccinations. That's the thing I'm most worried about this fall 
is that kids are getting very, very sick and dying, which we haven't really seen until now. It, it's just really, really dire. Sorry, now I'm turning my ra- rant into a rave again. No, but- you're raving to a rant. That's oh, right. sorry, That's my right. rave into a rant, but yay for vaccine approval, and let's really hope that they can get something to the kids really soon. What about you, Rick? What are you drinking, and what are you ranting and raving well, about? Well, I'm going to switch my drink order, because I'm going to join Charles in the 30s, and I think I'm going to have a Cesarac. Yeah, I feel you're mellow there, and I think I want to join you. This week, I'm ranting about, because like all the political things I would want to rant about are so obvious, like fucking DeSantis and then the stupid pillow guy and all of that bullshit. I'm going to rant about dentists. I have a great dentist. Don't get me wrong. She's really, really fantastic. The problem is I have an incredibly sensitive gag reflex and I can't do x-rays. I just can't do those x-rays. I have to go to the dentist next week, and I'm already in an anxiety state about it. So I hate that. And come on, someone at a dental school, do some research on making those x-ray things smaller. Like, come on. Right, we we should be able to do this. Hey, I'll tell you this, though. I've got a similar thing. I'm very, very ticklish. And my annual exam with my physician, who's a, a, a fantastic physician, but there's giggling and there's sort of like laughing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure the people out in the hallway of the doctor's office are like, what the hell is he paying for? So and stay tuned, listeners, because we will have full video coverage of yeah. the next checkup. On our YouTube channel. I didn't know you could get a physical with a happy ending. You boys. <laughs> you boys are not sending your best people. I am just identifying and sympathizing with his humanity in the face of medical technology. <laughs> All right, you didn't give us a rave. Rick. So um, I'm raving this week about the movie Jaws. I just saw it again, and I had forgotten that there's a whole lot of movie that isn't just about the shark eating people. And, like, the whole movie is incredibly interesting. It's about business interests trumping the safety of people. It's about the power relations between police force and politicians and business interests. And I, I hadn't seen it in years, and I forgot all about that. I think it's a really, really great movie. Yeah, well, you're right. It's great acting. Yeah. Great story. It's like some amazing directing in terms of Spielberg's ability to do so much with so little. Yeah. And I remember when I first saw it as a kid, like that movie, it, it took me months before I would go in the water again. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Same. No, it's it scared the shit out of me as yeah. well. So, yeah. Even in Lake Michigan, I wouldn't right. go in. <laughs> Known for its sharks. <laughs> Lake shark. Lake shark. <laughs> Ding dong. Lake shark. <laughs> Okay, Charles, you're in the hot seat this week. What are we talking about? We are talking about music, and, you know, we reference music so much. You know, Lee is a professional singer and guitar player. Uh, professional is a little bit of a stretch there. <laughs> Look, I've seen you on YouTube. That makes you professional enough for me. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and I certainly dabble. I, I do work in music, and I know, Rick, you clearly have a great appreciation for music based on some of your rants. And I've been reading like some Nietzsche and I'm not a Nietzschean by any stretch of the imagination, but I think there's something to be said about his account and the way he thinks about music as being this very particular and singular element and signifier for human character and I think human consciousness. And that makes me think about the ways in which other theoreticians have thought about music. I think about somebody like a Ralph Ellington, or I think about someone like Albert Murray, Du Bois, certainly in Souls of Black Folk, music was a very important part of the structure. I think about the ways in which members of the Frankfurt School took time to consider the role of music and culture. But I also want to think about and talk about music in terms of what it means personally for us, how it affects us in our lives, what it evokes within us. And and to go back to the original Nietzschean question, is there something about that experience that gives us a definitive account of who we are as, as beings? So I want to talk about music. I think this is a great opportunity to... God, I wish we had all kind of copyright money, right? We could just play extended bits of music. But I just want to talk about music because I'm finding it so important for me now, especially at this time in history, as a form of support and comfort, communication, community building, so forth and so on. So, you know, let's talk about some music. (laughs) 
so can we just start off with what it is that we like in music or don't like in music? So Charles, like, how would you describe your musical tastes and distastes? You know, broadly speaking, I like most genres of music. It's like people. I look for something to like about you. But unlike people, most times I don't find it. But with music, I too. But specific elements, I like I like music that sort of sparks me, that makes me feel alive. You know, the lights go on and things get sharp and bright. Unlike music that sort of numbs you out. Like Brian Eno's never going to be a big one for me. <laughs> right? Music and Elevators Volume 3 is just not going to work for me. <laughs> But John Coltrane is really going to work. So I like music that has that emotional oomph that sparks one's emotional capacity. I like music with a deep groove. I love funk music. That's my, yeah. kind of maybe my favorite genre. Yeah. I like soul music. I like music that I think digs to and shows us what human emotions and what the human spirit looks like. So there's something in an Aretha Franklin riff that does that for me. But there's yeah. also something yeah. within, I think, Mozart has moments of that, where I can feel this sense of the grandeur of existence. So I like music that makes me feel alive, makes me really yeah. feel aware and much more in touch with the elements of existence. I feel that. What about you, Rick? Yeah, I'm kind of a musical slut also. I guess if I had to pick a favorite for the past, I don't know, five years or so, I've been listening to a shit ton of jazz singers, women, starting in the 30s through even the early 70s. Well, and now these days I'm grooving to Samara Joy, who is bringing some of that kind of groove back. So I, I think I raved once about Dorothea Dandridge. She's my go-to. And I got there because I was in college and a little bit after. I was a huge fan of Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, that kind of singing. And then I, I started expanding. And I think my turning point was Anita O'Day, who was a fantastic singer. And I forget who she was playing with at the time. One of the big bands, well, by big, I mean well-known. They were also a big band, but, and she refused to wear an evening dress. She said, I'm a member of the band. I'm wearing the band uniform. Nice. Oh, okay. She was totally cool. But I listen to a lot of classical. I listen to, I don't know, lately when I'm cooking and stuff, I've been listening to a lot of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Jefferson Starship and or Airplane. So <laughs> like that kind of... 60s, 70s vibe. I, I've been digging a lot lately as well. What about you, Lee? So I often say that my musical taste is three chords and a sad story. And I think that that's <laughs> mostly true. I think that if I was speaking broadly, I love roots music. So I consider that gospel, folk, yeah. country, and yeah. blues. And in particular, I love where those intertwine with one another, which is what you see in a lot of pop music and soul music. I do love pop music. I do not turn my nose up at a well-crafted pop song. I, I love the craft of songwriting. I do want to say there are musical genres that I don't like. I don't like Celtic music, or at least not the hyper leprechaun-y sounding <laughs> Celtic music, which just makes me like want to punch somebody like anxious. I don't like Celtic music. I don't like a certain subgenre of, I guess, what would be called heavy metal or speed metal, where it's just like the yelling, you right. know, all the time. I don't like that. I'm not a huge fan of what I sometimes call smart jazz. So jazz, when it gets to that experimental, atonal, mathematical place where like you really have to understand music in order to get what you're actually hearing. Some of that, I love jazz, like classic loungy jazz is some of my absolute favorite music, but some of that atonal stuff. So I think that I do like most genres of music, but for me, I am a lyrics person. What I love about music is the way that stories are able to be told both in words and in sounds. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think that's why I'm a fan of musical theater <laughs> and all of those things. <laughs> I, I, I love musical theater, too. I know that's a surprise because I have my fancy drinks and I listen to musical theater, <laughs> dance around my kitchen singing. Modern Major General. <laughs> I could have danced all night. I could have danced. <laughs> 
Um, anyhow, um, this that's the second time in this podcast, I, not this episode, but in this se- season I've sung on, on the podcast. We love it. The first time was <laughs> Julia Kristeva. Um, <laughs> so, Lee, I am so with you about when you were talking about smart jazz. Like, I get the importance of someone like Schoenberg, but mm-hmm. there never comes a moment when I'm not in a classroom in which I'm like, I'm going to put that. You know Sch- what? I want to listen to I'm you. Gonna, so I'm sure. going to put that Schoenberg album on and just chill. Yeah. And I, I say this as someone who like I am really into Adorno and Adorno studied with Webern and I think makes really good arguments for the importance of that kind of music. But it's not pleasurable. And I think this gets mm. back to Charles Groove. Like there is absolutely no groove there. And, and so it seems to me kind of anti-human in, in a way. It is music robbed of everything that belongs to the human, starting with the heartbeat and the rhythms of our lives and our breathing and our movement and going on from there. So I'm with you, Lee. I really do appreciate it in the music appreciation sense, but I don't like it. <laughs> He's using scare quotes, listeners. <laughs> well, and, and thank you for that, Rick, because you really brought this to where I was thinking as I was listening to Lee talking about the elements of music that she likes. And this goes to the question about what is the relationship between our humanity and what we call music? This set of sounds, this organization of sounds, the construction of, of these patterns. And it's it seems to me that what music makes it so powerful is its ability to and one can say this about any number of creative forms or types of expression but music seems to so elicit powerful emotions but very specific ways of moving one through the world i.e through dance or the desire to have a conversation to get in dialogue with what one hearing through singing or through humming or through keeping a beat so the question becomes is what defines music from how we're talking about it, something that puts a Schoenberg outside of that, in that there is no way in which one can have a conversation, can engage and interact with the form. And if, is that what can help us to understand and boil down what we can define as, as music? And I'm not searching for a definition of music, but I think it's important to think about why this form and what this form does and what makes it so, in my opinion, so specific and definitive versus other forms. I want to pick up on something that I think you're laying down there, which is the kind of communal nature of music. So you guys know I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. PK! And I grew up with church music. And I don't go to church anymore. I'm not religious anymore. But I will say that the thing I miss the most about being religious is church music. It's singing with other people in this kind of, uh, like just singing with other people, period, I think is like one of the most beautiful experiences. It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. It's one of the most beautiful human experiences that you can have. But I do miss that a lot. And I think just going back to Rick's point about Schoenberg, even when there are pieces of music that I, for example, would not sit in my room by myself and listen to, like Schoenberg, I can think of examples of music like that. So let me tell you the specific example I'm thinking of is the Trent Reznor soundtrack to the Facebook movie. I can't remember what the name of the movie was. You know, the the social network. Yeah. Like that is not a piece of music that I would sit down in my room and listen to. But in the context of telling a story, I loved it. I thought it was an absolute brilliant composition. And I think that for me, that really does come down to that music is really about not just my humanity or my pleasure, but like, how do I share my understanding of what it means to be a human with other humans? Language is, of course, one of those ways. But another way is music. And I played in bands for like most of my 20s and honestly, most of my 30s. But since I stopped playing in bands as an adult... I very rarely sit down and pick up a guitar or a harmonica Mm. just all by myself. Mm. I do if people are over, but then it's the same thing, right? Like you're just playing music with other people again. And even if I am sitting in my room by myself listening to music, it's always going to be music that's telling me a story. 
I, so you make a great point that reminds me of a book that I teach, Lee, Samuel Floyd Jr.'s The Power of Black Music. And, you know, it's this really great musicological analysis of black music in America and the various trends and fundamental elements of it. And a key to his introduction is he bases his analysis in the writings of the historian Sterling Stuckey, who in his great book on black nationalism, says that the fundamental aspect of what Africans brought to the United States in terms of ceremonial practice was the sacred circle. So Floyd expands that and says, well, look, the basic elements of black music are the, the drum, the song, and the dance. And the dance can be seen as a part of the circle. And as you're talking about what gospel music does for you and the experience of that, I was raised in a Baptist church, Mississippi-based, so you and I probably have exact experiences, <laughs> right? We have the same songbook. We have the same songbook. <laughs> you know, but, I, but I think about how music brings all these elements together of communal identity, the room for individual expression, this very real feeling of transcending one's embodiment. All of this is taking place. So, you know, so not only do I think, okay, is this what makes us human in terms of the ability to intentionally create this, but does this open up a door to a transcendent humanity? Does this open up the door to a certain type of musical expression, open up the door to move beyond embodiment? That transcendence, Charles, that you ended there with is something I've been thinking about lately a lot because... I I can't pinpoint when this started, but there are certain moments. And when someone is singing particularly well, where I get physical chills and sometimes I'm like so pleased, I almost break down into tears. And this struck me the other night. I was eating dinner. And since I live alone, I watch TV when I eat dinner. And Sister Act 2 was on. And at the end of that, (laughs) Whoopi Goldberg's chorus does this amazing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, that like, when they got into it, like, it just hit me. And for me, I started thinking, there's something here that operates a little bit like Freud's notion of jokes, that something gets in me before my thought process can take over. And that then hooks me up with another human being in ways that I think very few other forms of art and just everyday communication, they don't do that for me in the way that music can. Yeah, I think that has also been my experience. If you've ever sung in a group, in a choir, and again, it doesn't matter if you're an actual singer, if you've just in your church or if you've gone caroling or if you've, you know, been at a bar and everybody's like sweet carolining it, whatever. I hate if that song. Ever, okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know I'm going to get My all kinds is of it doesn't matter. shit from Boston Red Sox fans and actually football fans here in Oberlin High School, you know. But Charles, it's so good. So good. So good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well played. Anyway, but if you've ever been in that experience... It really is a transcendent experience. Like, it's as if you have become another voice. Like, not just a part of another voice, but all of you are a voice. And and if you are a singer and you, for example, understand harmonies and you've ever sung with other people in harmony, that moment that the harmonies coalesce, there really is. It's, you know, if you're singing three-part harmonies with people, it's as if there's a fourth person there and you're all that fourth, mm. you know? And mm. it really, I, I'm not sure that there are many other experiences that we have that make it clear to us what it feels like to be a part of a collective other than protesting, like literally shouting or chanting with other people, other than singing with other people. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. 
If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Well, two points, because I was thinking about that, you know, what does it feel like to be a part of a group that's protesting, to be in the streets with this larger body, which at certain moments feels like an extension of the self that is so expansive. But I think there's something about music and there's something about the conscious aesthetic quality of it, the, the desire to find and elicit beauty within that action within that relationship. So I agree with you about how it makes us feel larger as a part of a larger body, but there's something about the quest for beauty, which is implicit in that, which is, which delineates it and makes it so, I, I think, superior to other forms of communal engagement. Hey, I kind of want to look at the other side of it. So we're talking about this feeling of transcendence, right? the way in which emotions are elicited, deep feelings of passion, the triggering of memories, like I can listen to, and I think I said this in an earlier podcast when I had a rave about the Spinner song, Sadie. That song puts me back at my mother's breakfast table on Sunday mornings in 1974, and I can smell the bacon and the eggs that she's cooking before she's getting ready to take me and my brother to church with her. I swear to God. Mm -hmm. The flip side is, and I'm not a neurobiologist by any stretch, and I, and I realize I'm saying this every podcast, that I'm not something. <laughs> But is there something about the tones that are acting upon, for lack of a better term, brain cells or waves of energy within our brains that are facilitating these experiences or these feelings? So is it not necessarily this spiritual sensation and relationship that we're implying, but is there actually something very real meat space about this relationship to music? Okay, now you're tapping into my favorite nerdy way to talk about music, which is that, I mean, music at its base, right, is just mathematics and sound. And I do think that this is one of the things that, for example, Plato and the Pythagoreans got right, which is that mathematics and music should be one of the first things that you teach people. Because I do think that it gives you a kind of insight into what is really the sort of ultimate structure of reality. You know, like how things are consonant or dissonant with one another basically come down to these mathematical ratios. I think that when you lay stories on top of that, right, now you have this even more complex way of understanding not just the physical natural world that we live in, but also the physical natural world with human complex stories, real life stories in it. Your last point there, Lee. Well, actually, let me go back to your earlier point about I, I wholeheartedly agree that music should be taught in a much more foundational way than it is. And I was taught music starting in first grade. And I went to a school that at the time we couldn't afford instruments. And so we would just like clap or use parts of our bodies as instruments. Or like we did, you know, T-T-Ta-Ta, T-T-Ta. Yeah, um, yeah. There was a whole school of music education developed around this. I can't remember the name of it. And you know what? I still remember some of those things we used to do. Like, stop, look. The big brass band will be coming down the street, coming down the street. Trumpets, sousaphones, euphoniums, and sly trombones. And this was a rondo. So, like, that is a kind of transcendent thing. And I think, but, Lee, I'm a little worried about claiming that this is the fundamental nature of reality because... I'm a little bit worried about the preference for tonal harmony over dissonance and what that means both metaphysically, that is in terms of what reality is like, but then coming out of that ethically and politically. And this is something I appreciate in Adorno is in art in general, he's as interested in the ugly as he is in the beautiful, and he's as interested in the dissonant as he is in the harmonious. Precisely because I think he has this worry about a kind of demand for harmonization 
that comes out of music and enters into social life. But I don't think that you have to necessarily institute a, a preference or a, a kind of value. You don't have to make value judgments about consonants and dissonance to say that this is how the world is ordered, is in mathematical ratios, and that one way of talking about them is in terms of consonants and dissonance. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that there are cultural differences in the way that we understand music, obviously, and those get translated into the way that we talk about politics and even ethical relations with one another. But, of course, there are many good reasons to value dissonance, to value disorder, to value things that don't match up in uniform, beautiful ratios. But... In order to even explain why there's value in that, you have to understand what's happening there. And that's why I think, you know, again, the, the truth is, like, we know the studies show that students who learn music early are better at math, they're better at logic, right. and eventually are better at reading and critical thought. You know, I mean, just to go back to what we've been talking about, and I know Rick is not a big fan of critical thought, but, like, <laughs> what we've been talking about for the last several episodes. And I think that really does come down to the fact that when we're talking about mathematics, we're talking about the order of the world. Can I just tell a quick story here? So when I was in graduate school, one of my professors, uh, Denny Schmidt, was teaching a course that I think was on nature. I don't even remember what the course was on. But we read the Pythagoras. I mean, sorry, we read Plato's Timaeus. And as you probably know, in the Timaeus, Plato gets into this like very extended discussion of how the universe is built out of different kinds of triangles, like all of the elements are built out of different kinds of triangles. And I was doing the presentation and I was so into this. Like I went down the bunny hole, like all the way down that I woke up in the middle of the night and while I was at Villanova in Philadelphia, walked down the street to the Wawa and bought a protractor, which by the way, you can buy at a Wawa or at least you could in the early 2000s and went home and like worked out the triangle stuff of the Pythagoras. I mean, sorry, of the Timaeus. I keep saying Pythagoras because, of course, Plato was basically a Pythagorean. And I think that really, despite the fact that I've played music and music has been such a part of my life for my whole life, I've never considered myself good at math. Like, I'm not like math is my thing. But that was when I really was like, oh, you know what? Math is my thing. Like, this <laughs> is how I, this, I mean, you know, obviously like advanced math is not my thing. Like, I can't do it. But I like to try to understand it. Like, I do think that, that was my first time when I was like, yes, actually, music and mathematics are part of the order of reality and the disorder. Well, or at least a doorway, one of the possible doorways into understanding the general structure. I feel like you guys keep trying to draw back my claim. <laughs> I want to say that, no, I actually think that, that it is all the way down. Well, that's what friends do. Friends push back against absolute no, claims. No, no, I'm glad, I'm glad, <laughs> but I just want to be clear that, like, I'm not pussyfooting around this claim. Like, I really do think it's all mathematics. I mean, you were on the verge of you talking about the, the music of the spheres. Right. We're, we're I was two just clicks away say from that. Yeah, we're two clicks away. Is that Avicenna? Talks no, about it's, the music uh, with, no. Kepler. Oh, is it Kepler? I thought there were like some North African Islamic thinkers who talked about the music of the spheres as well. I don't know. Not that I can think of. Yeah, I'm digging deep into my history of philosophy right here. But anyway. We'll probably have some medievalist or some North African writer come in and be like, oh, you assholes don't know what you're talking about. Well, certainly Kepler talked about the harmony of the spheres. Right. For sure. But Lee, so I think part of the problem with the notion that mathematics is the basic structure of reality is if that's true, then the math we need is a math we don't have yet. Correct. I totally agree Be with that. Because yeah. now we're discovering that the nature of reality outstrips our mathematics. But who's discovering it? People who are really good at mathematics. I mean, it's such a good point because I don't know if you guys heard this, but just last week, Google has maybe made the first steps towards actually functional quantum computing by creating this like time crystal, right? I mean, and I, obviously this is an episode on music. I'm not going to explain time crystals as if I could, but I'm not going to try to explain time crystals. But the point is, is that, yes, I agree with you. The advances that we've made in the understanding of reality have 
always been also advances in mathematics, in understanding mathematics. I mean, mathematics is just a language, right? It's, you know, it's not like I don't mean it's the essence of reality, like you know, nature or God, like Spinoza. No, 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 no. You're not making an ontological claim. I, I, I believe that. No, I think, but it is a universal language, right? No matter where you go in the universe, one plus one will always equal two. Except right? on Twitter. Except on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the MAGA people on Twitter. <laughs> and the philosophers, honestly. Right. So, so so if one plus one equals two, right, then one can talk about the, the one and the three, right, or playing on the two and the four, right? To me, those seem to connect very easily. So, okay, so I will accept the claim that mathematics is a universal language, and because music is based on mathematics, we can argue the universality of music no matter where we go. Yeah. And, and shout out to Steven Spielberg for translating that in, like, Close Encounters. Mm. Oh, man, that's such a good movie. It is a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, 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 do. It, is, it is actually a good movie. I have to give it to it. It is fantastic. But my only worry is the ways in which let's say certain ratios are considered beautiful and that in this consideration, there's usually an argument that it is the very ratio itself. That is, this, this normative claim is not laid on top of the mathematical claim, but rather the mathematical claim shows us what is beautiful. And that's yeah. what I kind of want to reject. Yeah, I also want to reject that. And I think that this is also part of the way that I think that people are misunderstanding the value of, sorry, this, this is going to sound like I'm going way afield, but I swear to God, I'm not like that. This is how people are misunderstanding the functional value of algorithms. They say, well, it's mathematics. Like, it just must be the case. And some people argue against, for example, advancements in AI to say, like, well, not everything can be mathematized. Not everything can be made into an algorithm. That may be true. I'm not entirely convinced that it is, but it may be true. But it certainly is the case that the fact that the algorithm works does not mean that it's true. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's valuable. I often give my students this example, musical example, when we're talking about algorithms, which is, I'm sure you both know, everybody knows at this point, the song Hallelujah. It was a Leonard Cohen song that was literally redone by everyone. So in one verse of that song, he sings, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. That is an algorithm. That is an algorithm for how to write the crescendo of a song. It's literally in that. It's literally in the actual lyrics explaining to you what it's doing, right? Now, I say to students, once we kind of talk about how it's just basically a set of instructions, like, what is it a set of instructions for? And it's interesting, right, that a lot of them are like, oh, it's a set of instructions for how to give somebody goosebumps. It's a set of instructions for getting ready to say the sad part. It's a set of instructions for getting ready to resolve the sad part. So I think that that is, in many ways, like the same thing that Rick is saying here, that just because it's a ratio doesn't mean it's a ratio for the beautiful or the good. It's just a ratio, and there are different ways of interpreting what it is and what it does. But Lee, the, the point you uh, made Getting to your conclusion there is the one that I raised earlier that most interests me, and that is, like, how the fuck does music produce chills? How the hell <laughs> does music prepare me to hear the sad? Like, th this to me it borders on magic. <laughs> Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation.
I like Lee's idea about this this algorithm. And each algorithm has a key to unlock particular sort of experiences or physiological responses. And I like the idea that because it seems to me that what you're saying is music can function as the key to unlock the puzzle that is human experience mm. and consciousness. Mm. Right. And it has this physiological effect upon us and it has this psychological effect and emotional effect. And we know what types of music will do what to people. We know that major chords will generate positive feelings. We know that minor chords can generate negative feelings. We know that booming bass will have a particular effect upon the way in which we respond to it. We know that very high notes and chords will have. So, you know, that's an interesting thing. And I think that's a moment where we can merge both of these questions as music just simply being a way by which to manipulate in the meat space if we may go back to the digital lives sort of language and at the same time being able to speak to and invigorate or manipulate because i think that's something we have to talk about but manipulate this other transcendent part of us so i'm not trying to get into some cartesian duality with this thing because we still haven't quite answered the question of the ways in which this experience of the transcendent is still locked into the, the embodiment of our existence. But I think to tie together points that each of you made earlier, it seems like that transcendence is not something like God or something beyond us, but it's beyond me. It's the connection, the relation I now have with others in which I realize that we are not just individuals, but when we're doing this, we are more than ourselves. And that's fully embodied. The other thing I just wanted to throw out there is, you know, I'm probably physiologically wrong about this because like Charles, I'm not a neurobiologist or a physician, but music strikes my entire body in a way that painting doesn't and in a way that poetry doesn't. Like when you mentioned bass, Charles, I, I felt like my one of my friends installed one of those ginormous, I, I don't know about musical equipment, but like a huge bass in the trunk of his car, the kind that makes the whole subwoofer, it, it makes the whole car shake. I thought I was having a heart attack because the pressure <laughs> that right. thing produces, like that produces air pressure. And I felt like I was either drowning or having a heart attack. And I don't find that with painting. You know, I I love me some beautiful paintings or photographs, but they don't affect my entire body. And it might be that that whole body effect is related to this being drawn out of myself to meet other humans in a moment in which we realize that we are each more than ourselves. And it might be that music makes you realize that because music is tapping into something that is universal. I mean, just to return to my earlier point about mathematics. You, okay, so <laughs> you are not going to let this go. You are not going to let this go. Like, I'm like Drop Rick it. in the last. I'm like Rick in the last episode. <laughs> yeah, but I got a bone. All right, but here's the thing: is that I mean, this is not necessarily my position. Although I would not reject this out of hand as an explanation. But it may be that the way that our consciousness works is entirely algorithmic. Like at some point that we can understand exactly why we feel everything that we feel, why we think everything that we think, why we desire everything that we desire. It may be that it can be mathematized at some point. If that is the case, and if that's tapping into something that orders the universe as a whole, that orders reality as a whole, then yeah, of course it makes sense that this is the medium by which we can feel things, we can get outside of ourselves and get connected to things larger than ourselves. But I also want to return to the point that Charles made, which is that as much as we all love music and it's amazing, that also makes it a really dangerously powerful tool. Mm. I mean, when you think about the way that national anthems can be used, or again, as someone who grew up in the church, I know that Charles is going to have had the same experience, but you know, they used to do this thing at a certain point near the end of the service where they would have like an altar call. And I know exactly what kind of music is being played during the altar call. And it is exactly that algorithm that Leonard Cohen wrote in that lyric to his song, which is like an algorithm that leads you out of yourself, leads you to find something bigger than yourself. And we used to say like, oh, they're playing that come bump your head on the altar music, right? Because, because you know, that's what it was meant to do. It was right. literally meant right. to drive you out of the pew. Right, 
right away from the person that you are and to be something it else. draws you it draws so it's like the fucking pied piper now that story makes yeah, so yeah. much powerful sense yeah so for maybe our listener or perhaps a co-host who has no idea what the hell you're talking about with an altar call could you please explain what that is it's it's a moment of proselytization at the end of a service after the sermon and before the conclusion of the service the minister will basically invite members of the audience who are not already part of the Christian community to come. It's a moment of conversion, but it's, it's also a moment where the members of the community who may need particular prayer or may need a particular spiritual sustenance or who may need to feel the physical as well as the spiritual presence of other members of the congregation literally come forward to the altar at the head of the space and gather together for singing, for meditation, for the prayer, laying on of hands. the laying on of hands, people touch each other. Really, it's this moment by which a resolution of the service can be achieved, whether it be the need on the part of the congregants for a certain type of spiritual bomb or the need of someone who has been awakened and convinced to believing in Jesus Christ as your savior and wanting to join the Christian community. All of that is happening. And even the most storefront baseline church will have an artfully constructed altar call. So there's a very real sincerity about it, but it is a masterful piece of theater as well. Rick, I thought you were actually asking for an example of what it sounds like, which I can give you, but it would require me to sing for a second. And you guys, I can cut this out if you don't like it. No, no, do it. Do it. Yeah, but I I think I need to hear it because now that I can imagine what this looks like, your point then about the music that is an algorithm for this, I need an example of it. Okay, so here's an example of a song that was often played during altar calls in my church. So... What I want you to hear is, I'm just going to sing like the first verse and then to the chorus. So you can hear that when this chorus comes, like you're drawn to go forward, right? Okay, so it goes like this. It goes, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry while on others thou art calling do not pass me by I'm calling Savior Savior Why don't you hear my humble cry? Mm -hmm. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Now, would you not want to have somebody lay hands on you if you heard that? I wanted you to lay hands yes. on me. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got to get a right? piece of that. That's just an example of the kind of song, yeah. both the story and the melody of it. It's it's this kind of lullaby, kind of plea. It's, it's plaintive. It's inviting. But like, imagine it with a good organ player, yeah. a good oh. gay organ player. <laughs> 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 Who's not out, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a plaintive, it's an invitation, it's a seduction. It's, it's soothing, yes. and right with that particular chord progression, it unlocks that emotional vulnerability in the listener. That's such a good point, because that song is as seductive as Let's Get It On. Yeah, yeah. Period. Oh, without a doubt. Maybe more so, because there's something about that song, and this is the first time I think I've ever heard it, that it it really is almost physically pulling you toward the front. It's really amazing. This experience of music, and I was raised Catholic, and there is music, but it's an entirely different kind, and it has an entirely different... Oh, my wife's Anglican, so I understand. Yeah. And, you know, I love me some Gregorian chant, and it is very spiritual, and it has a kind of aura to it. It feels like it's opening a space that is not part of this world. 
And what's interesting to me, if there's something about what I said, or, well, I mean, it must be true because it's my experience, that music is a whole body experience. It's interesting now that we've come to the point where that form of art, which is most embodied, is also the most spiritual or opens on to the spiritual. To go back to the point earlier of music as an algorithm that is able to unlock particular responses or behaviors within human consciousness, I mean, I would ask, could we have war without music, right? Because mm. mm. the music algorithm can also unlock those particular emotions. And I think about the war chants where you see some movie about ancient Rome and there's the drumming, or you think about the ways in which music has been used to drive a certain aggressiveness within humanity to engage in these really ugly and destructive forms of behavior or to justify, or, and we're talking about the content of the lyric, but fundamentally if we're talking about the tones, and I think that's what Lee was getting to when she said like the danger of the ways in which this substratum is able to unlock. And to me, it seems like what music does so effectively or can do is it shuts down what we see as the rational, logical component of our consciousness. You stop thinking and it opens you up to all kinds of commands. Whether it be, hey, join this Christian community with Pass Me Not, or whether it be Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On, hey, let's engage in sex, or whether it be, hey, let's go and kill our enemies. Yeah. I like the way that you stated that, that it makes you unable to resist corporeal demands. Yeah. I was saying to a friend of mine a few weeks ago that one of the things that makes me not trust someone is when you know good music is playing and I don't see them at least tap their feet or bob their mm. head or something like mm. like I'm like that person is wound up too tight and I need to keep a good social distance away away right. from that person because that is something that I, I just there's some songs like I just can't imagine that you don't move like how do you resist like your body moving to something in a sense that's an equivalent and this goes back to Rick's conversation about laughter in a sense, that's the same type of person that doesn't laugh. It's a sociopath, which goes back to our whole yeah. point about music being transcendent, of de-individualizing us. Yeah, de-individualizing us. I have to say the flip side, Lee, though, of your point is we need to stop dance shaming people. A hundred percent. If someone's out there dancing, God love them. You, you just do it. You just do it. And the it, same goes for singing. Like, I think that I've said this before, but one of the things I love most about karaoke is not the people who can sing. Right. It's the people who cannot carry a tune in a bucket, but they get up there and they are like, I love this goddamn song and I am going to <laughs> sing it with every atonal bit of passion that I have. Like, those are the people that I love. Next time we're together, Let's go karaoke and you'll have to see my downtown. Oh, I, I can't wait. I love oh, it. I mean, a quick story responding to what Rick said about dance shaming. When I was in grad school, I did six months in Ghana, study abroad, and I was with a group out of, I've forgotten the name of the school now, but I was there with a bunch of undergrads and I was a grad student. And, you know, we'd go out, we'd have fun, we'd go to clubs. And I had a friend of mine who I will not name because I don't want to shame him, but I love him dearly. He'd go out and he'd start dancing on the dance floor. And this happened on three separate occasions. Ghanaians would walk up to him in the middle of the dance floor and say, do better. <laughs> like Melania Trump. <laughs> Be better. Poor guy. Three times. And he liked to dance. But three times, do better. And I was like, oh, my God. So I feel you about, look, we celebrate as we celebrate. Our bodies respond as they respond. Some people have a better yeah. sense of rhythm. Some people have a better sense of coordination. So just celebrate the fact that they dance because you know they're not going to be killing puppies, you know what I'm saying, later on that night. <laughs> oh, you know, what the, you know what this brings up, though? And this is something that I honestly don't understand is people who have no rhythm or people who are tone deaf. And I'm sure that there are actual, I, I'm not a neurobiologist, but I'm sure that there are actual neurobiological and physiological explanations for some of these things. But I can't understand how people can't hear. Like, even if people can't sing, I can't understand how they can't hear the difference between what they're singing and the actual song. Just like I can't understand when everyone in a bar is clapping and moving on the same beat, how someone can't see that 
their motions are not in sync with literally everyone around them. Like it's something that this is not a shaming thing. It's just like a curiosity that I just find inexplicable. One of my aunts, and I won't mention which one in case she's listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, the knitting one. She is one of these offbeat clappers. And and like you said, Lee, I'm looking around and here's 400 people clapping <laughs> on the beat and she's clapping on the offbeat. But on the other hand, no shaming. She is smiling yeah. and having yeah, a yeah. ball. And so... God love her. Like, you do you. You do you. Well, I feel like this is also, you know, going back to earlier when we were pushing back against Lee's absolute claims about the role (laughs) and the position of music in the universe. The only drawback to that claim, which I, I largely support in terms of music as a universal language that can unlock all types of human responses, that actually makes me think the danger of that is that what you're doing is you're universalizing a certain type of person. Or you're normatizing a particular way of engaging with these sounds, these patterns, this language, these algorithms. And what could that dangerously begin to say about people who, like your aunt, Rick, who are not clapping on beat? Is, mm. is this a dangerous path? If I go back to my original thought about what does this say about one's humanity? Is there a danger that we can begin to say, this isn't just a difference, but this is a variant on this normative structure or this normal consciousness that Lee is making a claim about? Because that's really what you're saying. There's a, there's a human being that fits in with the universe, and those who don't practice or respond in the same ways, they don't fit in. Wouldn't that be weird to have a society where people discriminated against because they don't have rhythm? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure we don't. Um, I mean, we do, though. I mean, just think about... No, no I, mean, I mean real discrimination, like, you can't get a loan for a house. Right? right. No, you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but think about people who stutter. I'm just trying to think of like what would be the analog in speech to not having a rhythm in music. People don't get elected because they have stutters. They literally don't get certain jobs because they stutter. So yeah, there are lots of ways in which people who don't abide by the way that we understand the mathematical order of the universe get discriminated against. I mean, also in beauty, right? Like, I mean, they say that most of our beauty standards are basic mathematical equations, you know? So I don't don't think music is different in that way. I think that people really are discriminated against for not understanding math, for being bad at math. It's not really bad. Is it bad at math or is it? No, of course it's not they're bad at math. You know, like if you're ugly, you're just, you know. (laughs) Math has been unkind to you. (laughs) Your face is bad at math. (laughs) Once every episode, as a public service to Hotel Bar Sessions regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. Today's random fact is, the different colors of Fruit Loops cereal all taste the same. They're not individual flavors. Here's a random fact. Lucille Ball was the first woman to head a TV production company. She co-founded Desilu with Desi Arnaz in 1950. After their divorce, Lucy bought out Desi's share. She approved the production of Star Trek. Here's an interesting fact. The word aquarium means watering place for cattle in Latin. There's a point about the danger that I I, want to hit again because I think it's a really important point. And one way I could get into this is that You know, since the Olympics have just been on, we've all had a chance to hear a lot of national anthems. And with very few exceptions, even out of the context of the Olympics, if I heard this, I could tell you immediately, this is an anthem of some kind. This is a rallying cry of some kind. And that's part of the danger is, as Charles was saying, as much as the song you sang, what was the title of it? Pass Me Not. Oh, gentle savior. As much as that calls someone to the altar, Charles was pointing out music could call you to a lot of atrocities, right? Yeah, exactly right. To atrocities. Although I do have to say, I've retranslated the first phrase of the Polish national anthem, which is in Polish, Jeszcze Polska nie gniały, 
which normally is translated into English as Poland survives. But I think more literally, it, it should be translated as, and yet we're still here. Um, <laughs> Which I think is a great way to open a national oh anthem God. because that's not really calling you to anything. It's like, well, we've made it this right. far. We might as well keep going. <laughs> Zginawo, sorry. Zginawo was the last word. Well, unfortunately, Frangelica just gave the sign that it's last call. So we're going to have to end it here. Lee, you're in the hot seat next week. What are we going to be talking about? So next week, we are going to be talking about The Hustle. So in general, I want us to talk about gig work, about how we're always trying to survive, trying to get along, trying to get by. But in particular, I want us to talk about this series that has been running on HBO Max called Generation Hustle, which really seems to suggest that the Gen Ys and Gen Zs are a generation whose entire lives are going to be defined or are being defined by the hustle. Now, I do have a kind of funny story about this, which is that there's a car wash right around the corner for me. That's one of those outdoor car washes, you know, where like you drive in and you actually have to wash your own car. And there's this kid that works there. Not He doesn't work there. Nobody works there because it's a coin-operated car wash. But he hangs out there. And when you pull up, he's like, hey, I'll wash your car for $10 or whatever. Now, I don't want to wash my car, so I always let him do it. He's a great guy. He stands there. He like talks the whole time. But every time you leave, I give him the money and he He's like, thanks so much. Respect the hustle. And it's something that has, it's something that's just become a part of my vocabulary now to say like, respect the hustle. But I think over time, over the last several years that I've been saying this, I've realized that like deep down inside, I do respect the hustle. And that's despite the fact that I deeply resent the fact that people have to hustle. So I want us to talk about that next time and also about the HBO documentary. Sounds good to me. And then we're going to do the That's right. That's right. Because for men of a certain age. Do the hustle. When you say the hustle, I just see like lines of people in a big ballroom dressed in like brightly colored 70s tuxedos with ruffled shirts dancing in relative unison. I do respect that. Got to respect the hustle. Respect the hustle. All right, you guys, this has been great. I'm really looking forward to talking about the hustle with you next time. I will catch y'all on the flip side. All right, everybody. Be easy. Thank <laughs> you.